Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down, try not to try too hard, it's just a love Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? You can go to jtaylormedia.com, that's J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R-Media.com to, uh, to subscribe to those uh, newsletters and to take advantage of a special introductory trial offer for each of those letters separately. Uh, you can also at jtaylormedia.com access this radio show very easily. Just click onto the radio button. Also, the three newsletters that I just mentioned, as well as video interviews that I've done with CEOs of various mining companies, and also, you can uh, pick up on uh, my frequent appearances on CNBC, Fox, BNN, and Bloomberg. Well, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I also am grateful to our sponsors who make this show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, the sponsors are Merrick's Gold, American Manganese, and Romeo's Gold. Well, gold remains on a tear. How high is it going to go uh, in terms of dollars is one of the most asked questions and one of the most unasked questions uh, on the minds of investors these days. One of my favorite analysts is Bob Hoy, who sent out the following commentary to his subscribers yesterday, and I quote, Gold is now at the upper boundary of a 10-year resistance line. This is similar to the 1976-79 rise to $350. A correction here would be healthy. However, a decisive close above the channel would likely result in our long-term measured target of $2,155 being achieved quickly. The parallel channel would not provide any significance until gold reached $2,900. End of quote. Now, Bob showed the chart during the 1976-79 period, and at that time, 
the gold price bounced up against the lower channel, as it has done now, and then fell back for a very short-lived correction. From that point on, then, it went exponential, rising from the low 300s all the way to $850 in January of 1980. Well, I'm hoping that gold will fall back and really move sideways for quite a while, leaving the gold mining shares time to catch up um, based on the real price of gold, the exponential, really, not exponential, it's the wrong word, but we have seen a very strong rise in the real price of gold, what an ounce of gold will buy, and it now stands at 49.1%. That is, an ounce of gold will buy 49.1% of that broad basket of raw materials that called the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. Uh, it is a mere, it was a mere 17% before Lehman Brothers went down in July of 2008. Uh, you could have bought only 17% of the fund with an ounce of gold. Then it rose dramatically to 44% in March of 2009, and at the bottom of the first leg down in the massive new equity bear market. In my view, that was the first leg down. By the way, as of yesterday, the Dow-to-gold ratio had fallen to 5.5 to 1. Realize that through the the last 100 years or so, whenever the equity markets bottom during secular bear markets, we have seen the gold-to-Dow ratio reach a 1 to 1 ratio. So if the gold... If the Dow stood at 10,854, where it is now, or thereabouts, 10,800, and uh, it didn't move at all, gold would obviously need to rise to 10,000 to that same number to reach a one-to-one level. As one who leans towards deflation, and as I look at the charts from a long-term perspective, as I look at the huge problems the global monetary system is facing, I think it is likely that the gold-to-Dow ratio will reach parity at some much lower level. Whether that gets to the kind of $1,000 Dow, $4,000 gold price that Ian Gordon is suggesting, or something more like $4,000 on the Dow and $4,000 on the gold price remains to be seen, but suffice it to say, I believe the move in gold in real terms is likely not yet finished and may have quite quite a ways to go yet, actually. In any event, the bull market in gold shares now looks poised for liftoff, although I am still not discounting the possibility of a major decline in the general equity market, taking the gold shares down along with the general market, and that's why I still maintain holding some cash is a very good idea, uh, in addition to gold bullion in your portfolio. Given my bullish views on gold, I am happy to have with me today Tom Drevis. He's the president and CEO of Romeo's Gold. He'll be joining me in just a couple of minutes after our first first commercial break. And during the end of the first hour at approximately 3.30 or so uh, Eastern Time, New York City Time, Ed Griffin, the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, will be joining me once again. Ed will be back during the first half of our second hour as well. And he'll be talking about The Creature from Jekyll Island, that is, of course, the Federal Reserve Bank, how it is impoverishing the lives of most Americans while standing up for the rich ruling class. After Ed... We finish our discussion, uh, after I finish my discussion with Ed Griffin, uh, I am expecting Jeff Dice to join me, depending on his availability. Jeff is the chief of staff for Ron Paul. And Ted Ohashi uh, should be stopping by to chat with me uh, to do a wrap-up on today's show uh, towards the end of the second hour. Well, we have so much ground to cover, so let's get right to our first commercial break so we can get back with Tom Drevis, who will be stopping by in just a moment. Don't go away. Be right back with Tom Drevis, the CEO and President, Romeo's Gold. 
When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Romeo's Gold offers unprecedented opportunities in the final frontier of British Columbia's Golden Triangle, a copper-gold-rich region with improving infrastructure. Romeo's properties are located in the vicinity of multi-billion dollar deposits. With its $6 million plus drilling program underway, Romeo's Gold is focused on developing world-class mineral resources in a major upcoming mining district. Merrick's Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merrick's and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $16 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merrick's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. Legend Gold Corp. is a gold exploration company with flagship projects in Mali, West Africa. With successful drilling programs and new discoveries this year, we are in an excellent position to advance our two gold deposits. Shareholder value is anchored at Chukamala by a 43-101 compliant resource of approximately 600,000 ounces of gold. The recent addition of the Munina project offers the potential for a third gold strike. Legend Gold trades under the symbol LGN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Please go to our website at www. Legendgold.com. Rye Patch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at www www.rypatchgold.com When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Tom Drevis. He's the president and CEO of Romeo's Gold. Romeo's Gold trades on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol RG, and you can buy it in the United States in the over-the-counter market under the symbol RMIOF. There are 149 million shares outstanding, and the recent price for the stock was around 54 cents in U.S. money giving it a market cap of around $80 million U.S. Welcome, Tom, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you very much, uh, Jay. I really appreciate you inviting me over. Well, good to have you on the show. Uh, you and I have known each other for quite a few years now. Romeo's Gold was uh, was active uh, a few years back up in British Columbia. You have amassed a, 
a very attractive portfolio of properties in the in uh, some pretty good areas where lots of gold and copper and other minerals have been found. Uh, so let's let's uh, I want to ask you um, what metals are you really looking for, and maybe you can tell our listeners where your properties or where your main focus is these days. Uh, Jay, our main uh, property, uh, the the main focus is uh, the Galore Area, uh, Creek Area Project. It's in northwestern uh, British Columbia, and it's in the Golden Triangle area. This uh, the Golden Triangle area basically is uh, it's known for its copper, gold, and silver uh, uh, metals. And this is what we're looking for, basically uh, gold, copper, silver, or copper, gold, and silver. And uh, the within sort of a radius of 150 to 200 miles from where our properties are, there's uh, uh, there's about 200 million ounces of gold equivalent um, uh, 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 resources mm. that are, are to waiting to be developed. Uh, Jay. Wow, 250. 200 million ounces of gold or gold equivalent, I think you said, waiting to be developed. So there is a huge amount of wealth up there. Uh, I think there's some infrastructure challenges there, though, Tom. Could you talk to our reader, to our listeners a little bit about that? Yes, uh, Jay. The, the, the main issue was there up to now it was the infrastructure and, and the, it mainly basically because this is a huge project, a big, mm-hmm. uh, uh, world-scale uh, copper-gold um, uh, porphyry projects, basically operations that uh, mines that they would be in the, in the range of 100,000 uh, um, tons a day operations. So, and for and to produce uh, at that scale, you you need to have power. And um, the, the the power was lacking in the area. We didn't. There was no power lines up there. The last uh, uh, two or three years, the Canadian government, the federal government, and the British Columbia government have decided to spend up to uh, around four hundred million dollars to extend the power line to that area. And uh, the latest timetable to that is a, towards the end of uh, completion for the end of two thousand and thirteen. Once the, we feel that once those um, uh, once the power line is in in that area, uh, there's a, quite a few projects ready to um, to uh, move into sort of uh, development uh, uh, there. Um, okay. mm-hmm. Obviously, the Canadian government, I guess both the national and the provincial governments are involved with this. Yes, and I would imagine they can see uh, the potential for jobs and tax revenues flowing from this. That's that's the reason they would be interested in doing. In doing this, no doubt. Basically, this is the only way they're doing it because they see all this uh, potential out there for uh, for jobs and 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 tax dollars, and um, and uh, they they sort of decided to you know spend the money to um, uh, to uh, advance the area. Sure, uh, Tom. Do you have any resource numbers that you can report to our listeners at this point in time? Jay, we have a large area. We've got about 67,000 hectares up there. One of our property, the uh, properties there, the Newmont Lake property, we, we've, in, in, in that property we have a NI4301 resource of approximately 300,000 ounces gold equivalent mm-hmm. in copper, gold, and silver. Mm-hmm. We have been drilling, uh, for the last two or three years, we have been drilling another property, the track property, 
and we haven't done a, 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 a resource calculation yet. And the reason, although we're getting some very good results, the reason that uh, we, we, we felt that we have, you know, we've got eight zones, we only drill one, and, and um, we, we felt that we haven't drilled the best part of it. We haven't done uh, all the, um, the work that, is need, that we'd like to do, and, and this is why we haven't got a resource there yet. Okay, Tom, within this area in British Columbia, is there one property that you're really most focused on, or could you just talk about your exploration efforts up there uh, this year? Uh, I believe it's the Trek property that is uh, one that I'm familiar with. There's a couple of other properties. But what is your exploration program this year on the Trek and, and otherwise uh, in this immediate area around Glora Creek? Uh, JV exploration program for this year is primarily for the uh, Trek property. And the, it's the largest exploration uh, program, that, the annual exploration program that the Romulus has undertaken so far over the last, uh, over the last 15 years, basically since mm-hmm. the inception of the company. So we're planning to spend six, seven million dollars in drilling. Uh, the bulk of it uh, will be spent on, on track. We also would like to uh, drill um, a, another property uh, for the first time, uh, what we call the Dirk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's sort of another uh, copper porphyry uh, 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 potential uh, situation there, the deposit. We also, our main, uh, the other main project is the Newman Lake that we have the resource. But for this last year, uh, for the last two, three years, and, and this year, track and, and, and a, a little bit of dirt, um, um, uh, basically. Mm-hmm. So what... Positive exploration results. Uh, I know you've done. You've been working up there for a number of years. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what you've found so far and why you have reasons to hope that you that you might come up with something very significant on the trek uh, on the trek property? We, uh, as I mentioned, we've got uh, we've been working on trek for the last four or five years. We've been drilling for for the last three years. Uh, we have hit uh, uh, copper, gold, and silver. Uh, our first real hole basically hit 105 feet of uh, over 2% copper, over mm. a gram of gold, and over 26 grams of silver. Mm. Uh, our second hole hit um, uh, basically 88 feet of uh, uh, over 3.27 grams of gold, uh, 5.6 grams of silver, and 0.31% uh, copper. Mm. Uh, we also have some other uh, uh, interests. We, as of last year, basically we drilled uh, 23 holes. Uh, we have another hole with with um, uh, 14, 15, um, uh, uh, 15 feet of 3.84 uh, percent um, uh, copper and almost two grams, 1.82 grams of gold plus silver. So we we actually have a clay face. Like uh, we we see the mineralization right on surface. We've done some drilling. And we we get we were getting some good mineralization last year. We did a very sophisticated survey, the Titan 24 survey, uh, that was uh, tried successfully in other deposits uh, in other properties in the area, uh, and um, and it has indicated to us that there is some some deeper targets, some some targets that we haven't really tested on the north zone. And uh, this is why we're quite excited and quite busy up there. We've got three drills. Uh, to test those targets because we feel that this property has a good chance of hosting a, a world-class or, or a substantial uh, uh, deposit or mineralization up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you give our listeners some sort of uh, sense of the depth of those targets, those deeper targets? Uh, 
the the deeper target basically we're starting around 500 meters uh, depth, but but it's a it's a mountain site and and uh, we can drill from the site and we can access the property the, those zones from the site, so we don't really need to go from top to bottom. We can access it from the from the site. But what we're looking is we're looking at surface uh, mineralization that extends down, and uh, and uh, so so we're. Primary looking at open pitable uh, mineralization, uh, Jay. Mm-hmm. One of the things I found very interesting, Tom, is that you're uh, you have some well, some pretty significant deposits next door, and uh, there is a proposed uh, construction of a mill site for uh, Novagold and Tech, uh, their joint venture uh, arrangement there, where their mill would be built right next door to your Tech property. Um, and I'm just thinking, and, and you can tell me whether I'm whether I'm off base on this or not. But I'm just thinking that, in, you know, theoretically, if you were to come up with something very significant in your, uh, you know, on your tech property, that that could be very attractive and very important uh, for the uh, for the for that joint venture arrangement. What, what are what are your thoughts on that? Well, Jay. The, as I mentioned before, the deposits up there are huge. I mean, Galore, the Galore Creek deposit is one of the largest uh, undeveloped uh, copper uh, uh, gold deposit in, in North America. Uh, there is uh, recently uh, uh, Tech and Nova Gold that came out with a uh, positive pre-feasibility study, and uh, they are proposing to build a mill right next to the, our track property. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's, there's going to be... Um, uh, quite significant uh, uh, advantages, or, or, or if, if we have a, a, a deposit right next to the mill, uh, so uh, we, we feel that the it could be significant for for Romeos and it could be significant for uh, for the neighbors. But uh, uh, so we're we're quite excited, and uh, as you know, location, location, location. Uh, it, it, uh, it's hard to get a good deposit or a good um, good mineralization if you get it in the right place uh, where where there's some uh, infrastructure in place or the, the, in an area where uh, quite a, uh, infrastructure is, is going to be built. Uh, obviously, there there are certain advantages. Sure. Well, that's for sure. I mean, there's uh, we're talking about the mining industry is a difficult industry. It's one that can be incredibly profitable under the right circumstances, but it always is characterized by large capex. And if you can, uh, if you can spread out lots of ounces uh, over a larger uh, capital expenditure, obviously, it, it works to the benefit of the economics of the project. So it, it would seem to me that uh, I'm just just talking uh, on my own here. It seems to me that if if you were to find something very significant at, at, uh, on the Trek property, you well, you might want to go ahead and if it's significant enough. Uh, build your own mill and develop it and, and produce, but you, there also might be some uh, some synergies and some uh, economies of scale to work with somebody. Uh, this is, of course, just hypothetical. First of all, you have to find the deposit, Tom. I know you've got some good sniffs there, and there's some good reasons. Those are really some good numbers you just talked about, a couple of your first drill holes, both in terms of copper and gold and silver. Uh, so I guess there's reason to hope. I mean, we want our listeners to understand that these are highly speculative uh, investments, uh, and that's why when they hit, they can be spectacularly uh, profitable. So 
people need to keep that in mind. You don't back up the truck. You don't put everything you own into one company like Romeo's. But Romeo's is not just a one-project uh, story either, Tom, as, you, as, as you've talked about. You have several other properties up in British Columbia. Maybe you could just tell our listeners briefly about a couple of the other targets there. You mentioned, I think it's the Newmont. Is it the Newmont uh, Lake project? Right. Well, uh, J.M., the Newmont Lake property, uh, we've got about 18 different targets, 18 different zones. Uh, one of them has the resource that's 300,000 ounce gold equivalent. We we uh, never, uh, you know, have spent the money and the time to sort of uh, look at the other targets uh, extensively. Uh, so that's a that's a project that uh, that this property is just it was just north of uh, SK Creek. Uh, um, uh, mine basically that uh, that was one of the richest mine in, in Canada. Uh, uh, so uh, the on this uh, resource, when we did uh, uh, a couple of years ago, we drilled some metallurgical holes right through the uh, the resource uh, to get some, uh, some to do some testing for metallurgical purposes, and and we hit. Um, uh, over 753 grams of gold and over 400 grams of silver. Uh, so uh, it, it's a it's a it's an area that uh, uh, it's a property with with uh, a great potential for gold and, and copper and silver. The other thing that I should mention, uh, Jay, is we've got uh, uh, Dirk and 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 uh, um, also we have a new uh, property up there as of last year, the Andre property. The, what's what's significant? The geologists from the uh, Geological Society of uh, British Columbia were in uh, looking at that area last year, uh, mapping and sampling uh, uh, part of the Newmont Lake and the Dirk property and the Andrea property, and they came up with a report which is on their website, and uh, were basically saying uh, stating that the area is un- has unprecedented opportunities, is is the last frontier on the Golden Triangle, and in terms of the Dirk property, the one that we actually want to drill this year, we haven't drilled yet, uh, they basically saying that it has uh, a similar potential to Galore uh, uh, style of mineralization. So mm-hmm. we haven't really uh, uh, touched all the targets there. In addition to that, uh, Jay, we've got two properties in, in, in Ontario and two pro, uh, very good uh, camps in Timmins, Ontario mm-hmm. and around the uh, Pickle Lake and, and, and Red Lake area uh, and we've got a project in Baldor, another uh, world-known uh, uh, mm-hmm. camp and we've got also a property down in Nevada. So uh, we've got a number of projects so it's not a one-project uh, company dish. Oh, no, that's right and that, that does reduce risk however Tom, of course, there are um, always lots of capital expenditures, lots of expen- exploration expenditures, I should say, in your case. Uh, how, is your, how is your cash supply now, and how far will it take you this year uh, in your drilling program? We, uh, we have about uh, six, uh, I would say six and a half, seven million dollars right now, uh, mm-hmm. Jake. Um, we we think we we're, we're very well off for this year, basically in terms of the programs, and and uh, we do have uh, uh, enough funds to take us over next to next year. And uh, uh, obviously, it depends on the size of the you know the exploration program that we want to carry next year. But the as I mentioned earlier, in terms of uh, I started this company 15 years ago, and and and. Uh, uh, in terms of projects and cash and and, and the markets, it, it never looked any better. 
Having said all this, I agree with you. Uh, this is a high-risk, high-reward uh, uh, business, and and you know we're a small company, and and um, uh, people, you know, investors should you should treat it as such. Um, is there anything else, Tom, you'd like to uh, leave with our listeners before we conclude our discussion today? Uh, yes, uh, Jay. As I mentioned, we've got a major drilling program, six seven million dollars. We um, uh, in the next few months, uh, mm-hmm. we, we're expecting uh, drilling results, and, and um, uh, that's uh, you know that's uh, that could be exciting for for the company basically. Uh, and uh, we're uh, quite excited again with the uh, the improvement in the infrastructure. You know, the the, the power lines coming in mm-hmm. here. Uh, but I would say that uh, 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 to uh, your listeners that we've got a lot of information on our website, Romeo's. Com. There's a lot of information on CDAR.com in terms mm-hmm. of uh, our disclosures and, 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 and uh, press releases, and um, uh, they should be looking for uh, for uh, real results, basically uh, news for the next few months, because that could be uh, maybe the, the most exciting time um, of this company. Well, no doubt about it, Tom. It's drill results, drill results, drill results. It's location, location, location in real estate, and you are a real estate pro. You're also a, a mining exploration company pro by now. And, uh, yes, so you have the location um, and you have the potential, I would say, for some fantastic drill results. And drill results are, of course, what drive junior exploration companies. And junior exploration companies are the guys that are able to find large amounts of gold and other minerals in the ground that the majors are lusting after. The big guys like the Newmonts, the Barracks, the Gold Corps, the Agnigal Eagles, those guys have to have multi-million ounce deposits because they're chewing through their own resources, their own reserves very rapidly. And so it's companies like yours, Tom, with market caps of you know, well under $100 million, in your case something closer to $80 million, uh, that have the chance to grow dramatically because uh, you guys, the junior exploration sector, are the wealth creators, the wealth finders. The big guys then know how to produce it. So uh, it certainly is a company. It's, I mean, you are, after all, I should disclose this to our listeners, uh, Romeo's Gold is a recommendation in my newsletter. It's a company that I have personally bought some shares of stock in. So uh, I believe that the possibilities are there for something really big to happen. And, uh, well, I'll be watching, and I hope our listeners will be Tuning in, your, or we'll be uh, going to your website, which again is what? Uh, tell us once more, Romeos.com, is it? Romeos.com, yes. Very good. Okay, well, thank you very much, Tom, for sharing uh, your story with our listeners. So, folks, don't go away. I'm going to be right back with Ed Griffin. He is the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island. If you really want to know why things are happening the way they are, why the big banks are getting bailed out and the middle class is disintegrating, You can't afford to miss Ed Griffin coming back right after the break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Thank you very much, Jay. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Merrick's Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merrick's and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $16 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merrick's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. 
Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at w www.rypatchgold.com Legend Gold Corp. is a gold exploration company with flagship projects in Mali, West Africa. With successful drilling programs and new discoveries this year, we are in an excellent position to advance our two gold deposits. Shareholder value is anchored at Chukamala by a 43-101 compliant resource of approximately 600,000 ounces of gold. The recent addition of the Munina project offers the potential for a third gold strike. Legend Gold trades under the symbol LGN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Please go to our website at www. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters we're always talking business talk to an expert call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network welcome to the human race some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me today Ed Griffin. That's G. Edward Griffin. He's the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island and many other works as well. Uh, in case you have not read this book, and in case you give two hoots about your future, about why our policymakers are taking us uh, down the road to ruin, why they're taking away our liberties and driving our economy into the ground and our middle class into obiv- oblivion, 
you really can't afford to miss the creature from Jekyll Island, and you can't afford to miss what Mr. Griffin is about to tell us. He is a writer and a documentary film producer with many successful titles to his credit, such as The Creature from Jekyll Island, probably his best-known work, uh, World Without Cancer, and The Discovery of Noah's Ark. He is the recipient of the Telly Award for Excellence in Television Production. He's listed in Who's Who in America, and he is well-known for his talent for researching difficult topics such as archaeology, the Federal Reserve System, terrorism, internal subversion, the history of taxation, U.S. foreign policy, cancer therapy, and presenting them in a very clear manner. I can attest to that, having read uh, thoroughly The Creature from Jekyll Island. A graduate of the University of Michigan, he enrolled in the College for Financial Planning uh, in Denver, Colorado, in order to better understand the real world of investments as preparation for his book on the Federal Reserve System. He obtained his CFP designation, that's Certified Financial Planner, in 1989. He is founder and president of the Coalition for Visible Ballots, the Cancer Cure Foundation, and Freedom Force International. Welcome, Ed, once again to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thank you, Jay. It's a very kind introduction. It's good to be here. Well, it's a very deserved introduction, I must say. I was uh, very pleased to have met you a number of years ago. Gosh, it's getting close to 10 years ago now, I suppose, uh, down in Mexico. Uh, you very kindly autographed The Creature from Jekyll Island uh, for me. I have the book here. Uh, actually, it's not the way you usually treat an autographed book because I have underlined it and highlighted it and everything else. But, <laughs> well, that's uh, wonderful. <laughs> but it's, I love to uh, see that. It, yeah, it, but it's a, a book that I think, and I, in all the speeches I make, uh, wherever I'm talking, almost always I recommend to people that they, this is a must-read. If you want to understand why the world is, it is as it is, if you understand, want to understand why the policymakers are making policies that seem to be ridiculous, uh, at least in terms of most people's uh, viewpoints, then you have to read this book. Well, Here's the question, Ed. I chose to title our discussion today, The Tea Party Versus the Creature from Jekyll Island. And for the sake of those who have never read your book or listened to your speeches or prior interviews on this show, can you tell our listeners who the creature from Jekyll Island is and perhaps talk a little bit about his origin? Oh, sure. That's what it's, that's what it's all about. The Federal Reserve System is the creature from Jekyll Island. Mm-hmm. And the reason I... Uh, I created that title. Well, first of all, it has kind of a little mystery sound to it, and I thought that might attract attention. But it's it's a well-deserved mystery sound because uh, it is a creature, and Jekyll Island, although it has that sound like it might be related to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, it's not <laughs> anything like that. It's, uh, it's a real island off the coast of Georgia, and it turns out, uh, Jay, as you well know, it's on that island back in 1910 that the Federal Reserve System was created. And, you know, that in itself is, is a very interesting fact because um, Jekyll Island in those days was privately owned. It was a, a very private island. It was a, owned by a small group of billionaires from New York, people like J.P. Morgan, William Rockefeller, and their business associates. It's where their families went to spend the cold winter months from New York. And um, they had beautiful mansions there. And uh, they also had a beautiful clubhouse. And in that clubhouse that the movers and shakers in the banking industry back in 1910 gathered uh, in great secrecy. They told no one that they were going, and they denied that they were going. And 
they uh, adopted code names and they avoided publicity. They went to all, all kinds of great lengths to keep that meeting secret. And for a very good reason, and the reason is that the Federal Reserve Act was being drafted by them. And at the same time, the public was being told that this Federal Reserve Act, as soon as it was perfected, was going to be a way of controlling the big bad banks, means of bringing them under the control of Congress, under the control of the American people. And so had it been known that the very bankers that were supposed to be controlled were the ones writing the bill, of course, the, the cat would have been out of the bag and uh, the scam would have been easily recognized. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's that's why uh, the title for the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, but that's just scratching the surface. When you see what happened there on Jekyll Island and how they created a bill, which was essentially a cartel agreement, that's really what it is, you realize that the Federal Reserve is not a government agency, except in appearance only, and even then not, uh, not a very good imitation. It's really a cartel. Uh, no different than a sugar cartel or a banana cartel or an oil cartel. just happens to be a banking cartel in which the largest, most powerful banks in the United States with very strong connections with the largest and most powerful banks in Europe, actually, uh, came together and created a cartel agreement how to control their own industry to their own benefit and then how to sell that cartel agreement to the American people as though somehow it was in their best interest. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was the trick, you see. Mm-hmm. And so what they did is they took the cartel agreement, and then they they took the heading off of the top of it, which said, and this is not literally, but figuratively, it said cartel agreement. They erased that and wrote in the word that says Federal Reserve Act. That's all that was changed. Everything else uh, was the cartel agreement. Mm-hmm. But they passed it into law. And now all Americans must comply by the terms of that cartel agreement because it's law and so, it, so, that's why it looks like a government agency so ed are you telling me that they they thought of it as a cartel to start with of course these yes. gentlemen thought of it as a start as a cartel and they they, they changed the, the the nomenclature so it wouldn't be so offensive well i i use that as an exaggeration actually mm-hmm. they they knew they were creating a cartel mm-hmm. and they didn't have to change the nomenclature they wrote it that way from the very beginning mm-hmm. but i use that expression simply to to dramatize the fact that this isn't what it appears to be right and the united states of course uh, had a history a tradition um, you know dating to, to thomas jefferson and of course uh, andrew jackson and others against a uh, a central bank uh in the, for the United States, let alone a collusion, as you're suggesting, between powerful banking interests of of, uh, of Europe. So it was very. It would have been a, a real political battle had it had the people been really aware of what was coming. I guess. And then, as I understand it, and you you describe it, it's really entertaining reading for those uh, folks who haven't read this book. Uh, it's not drudgery. It's really very interesting uh, and entertaining reading because Ed, you talk about how, and this was. Uh, very well documented. Your book is very well documented how these characters got on a, a train in Hoboken, New Jersey, under the guise of duck hunting or something. I guess they, was, they were even carrying their, their guns with them and their hunting paraphernalia because that is what they would do, one of the things they would do on Jekyll Island. Is that right? Yes, that's true. Uh, not all of them did that, but several of them did. Um, uh, Jacob Schiff was one of them. Uh, he never 
ever fired a gun in his life, and yet he borrowed a shotgun to take it with him on this trip. So in case any newspaper reporters had asked him where he was going, he was going, well, I'm going on a duck hunting trip. And we learn all of that from his uh, biographers and his children who wrote about this in later mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. So, as you said, it is well documented because I know that this is upstream information and, and people tend to disbelieve it unless you know they've heard it on the nightly news. So, when you're saying things that seem to be out of whack with, with uh, common wisdom, you, you better be ready to document it pretty carefully. Right, and, and you really have. Uh, Ed, maybe you could tell our listeners just a little bit more about who some of the people were, the representatives. I think uh, at least a part of those representatives were, uh, were were from some very, very, very wealthy families. I, I think you mentioned uh, the, the Morgans. Uh, who were some of the other groups that were represented? And who were some of the rich families in Europe that were represented and really wanted to see a central bank formed in the U.S.? Yeah, well, there were six of them that made that trip. Uh, the first one was Nelson Aldridge. He was uh, the Republican whip in the Senate at that time. He was probably the most most influential politician, second to the president. Um, he was the chairman, in this case is what made him so important, is that he was chairman of the National Monetary Commission. That was the special committee of Congress that was given the task of writing the draft of the Federal Reserve Act. So that was his committee, and he was chairman of it. Uh, But also beyond that, he was a business associate of J.P. Morgan. He was father-in-law to John D. Rockefeller, Jr. You see what kind of circles he traveled in. Mm -hmm. He was a very wealthy person in his own right, and uh, just the kind of person that would uh, write a bill to control the banks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Obviously the worst person you could think of. But anyway, he was the first one, and as a matter of fact, he owned a private railroad car, and it was in that car that all of these other gentlemen joined and made that journey from New Jersey uh, to um, you know, up there uh, to Georgia. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the second man on board the train was Abraham Piat Andrew. Uh, he was Assistant Secretary of the Treasury in those days, which wasn't. It doesn't really tell you too much about him because. He was really a banker. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was his family background. That was his uh, personal background. He was the assistant secretary of the treasury because he was a banker with strong influence. There's not much different in those days than it is today. If you notice, everybody in the treasury department comes from banking, right? Right. Goldman Sachs primarily these days. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah Goldman Sachs or someplace. These are not politicians. They're, they're bankers. Mm-hmm. So, and that was true of Abraham Piat Andrew. Mm-hmm. Um, he later became a congressman and was a very interesting person because of his activities in, on behalf of the banking industry in Moscow. I wrote mm-hmm. about that in the book. You may remember in a chapter uh, about the influence of the, um, these, the banking fraternity from both New York and, um, and London, actually. Mm-hmm. Went, to, mm-hmm. went to Moscow during the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik mm-hmm. Revolution. And they financed all sides of the revolution. Mm-hmm. They wanted to make sure no matter who won, they wanted to be on friendly terms with them. Mm-hmm. But they gave a tremendous amount of money to the Bolsheviks. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they got concessions after the mm-hmm. revolution. And mm-hmm. it was a very profitable venture. And Andrew was at the, uh, at the center of that one. Mm-hmm. Okay, anyway, the third person on board the train was Frank 
and uh, Frank Vanderlip. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was president of the National City Bank of New York, and that was the most powerful of the banks at that time. He represented the financial interests of William Rockefeller and also the uh, investment banking house of Kuhn, Loeb and Company. Right. Very, very big. Uh, Ed, let, let me just ask you, um, so the National City Bank of New York, is, was, that the, uh, the, was that the bank that became Citicorp eventually, Citigroup? Ah, oh, that's a good question. I'd, before I'd say yes, I'd have to go back and check the, uh, the lineage on it. It seems to me it was, Ed, because as I recall, uh, you know, in the 70s or so, National City Bank... Um, that's that's just what my recollection. But I yeah, that's mine too. Uh, mm-hmm. There's been a lot of uh, name changing and merging going on right. since then. Right. And but I think you're quite right. That did become uh, was merged into it. Anyways, the Rockefeller mm-hmm. banks, mm-hmm. and that would be the, the Citicorp, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So it wouldn't have changed. Anything. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then the fourth person on board was Henry Davison, and he mm-hmm. was a senior partner of the J.P. Morgan Company. Mm-hmm. Benjamin Strong was there. He was head of J.P. Morgan's Bank mm-hmm. Trust Company. Uh-huh. And uh, then Paul Warburg mm-hmm. uh, was there. I and just the name switches around a moment ago. I said Jacob Schiff, and that's not, I got the name wrong. I don't know why I said Schiff. I was speaking about Schiff the other day, I guess. Anyway, it was Paul Warburg I was mm-hmm. thinking of. Now, mm-hmm. uh, Warburg was a partner in Kuhn, Loeb, and Company, mm-hmm. a full partner. And um, he was a representative of the Rothschild banking dynasty in England and France. Mm -hmm. And uh, all throughout his career here in the United States, he maintained a real close business liaison with his brother, Max Warburg, Mm -hmm. who was head of the Warburg Banking Consortium in Germany and the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. So that's the interlock. Uh, Six men tremendous power that they held either in their own name or in the name of the institutions which they controlled. Mm-hmm. As, as a matter of fact, according to the observers at the time, writing in papers like the New York Times at the time, they estimated that these people controlled about one-fourth of the wealth of the entire world. Wow, that's incredible. Those, yes. those Yes, and I see the commonality here, Ed, is that uh, within the U.S. we have the Rockefeller-Morgan sort of Group, and then within uh, Europe, you had the Rothschilds and the Warburgs very well represented as well. It seems yes. mm-hmm. so. Those were the interlocking uh, banking groups, and I believe, at least some people believe, uh, that the Rothschilds have an interest in the Bank of England. Do you know if that's true? Well, that's something I do not know that that's true. But uh-huh. Certainly, uh, it is certainly uh, probable mm-hmm. when you just look at, at the history of it, and. Um, Beyond that question, though, I think is a more important question. Whether you have an interest in it, I presume that implies a financial interest. Uh, they certainly have an uh, intellectual interest in it, but usually people are saying, well, they have a financial interest in it or that they own it. Uh, I think this no longer is, a, is a necessarily the, the question we should be asking. You can control something without owning 51% of it. Mm-hmm. And we see that happening all the time. I think in the large corporations, if you can hold 5% of a, a very large corporation, effectively you can control it. Yeah. And, uh, so I think the real question we should be asking today is, is not who owns these, um, these banks, but who mm-hmm. controls them. 
Mm-hmm. And there's well, that, no doubt in my mind that the, <clears throat> that the Rothschilds are, are big controllers of uh, European banking. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you, uh, Ed, you used the word cartel. Uh, you know, I know that you have uh, have always said this was to be a cartel. That was the intention of the, of the uh, founders, of the, the guys that were behind, the, the people you just named that were behind the creation of the Federal Reserve. And yet, uh, when I look at the, uh, the ownership, as it's laid out, uh, in terms of the capital stock of the Federal Reserve, uh, as the Fed says, at least, that every member bank is required to invest 3% of its capital stock in the Federal Reserve, and they get a 6% interest uh, or dividend payable every year. There's, According to some research I did, there's 2,900 individual member banks, in rough numbers, 2,900 individual member banks of the Federal Reserve. There's 4,800 non-member banks. So most people would say, well, look at all those different institutions. How could it be a cartel if there's so many different banks and if 4,800 of those banks are not even part of the Federal Reserve System? How do you answer that? Well, most cartels are dominated by two or three big players, Mm -hmm. and banking is no different. Mm -hmm. And uh, beyond that is the assumption made by people who ask that question, the assumption is that those who hold, uh, hold the stock somehow have some kind of voting rights mm-hmm. and therefore can control it. And that is not true with the Federal Reserve System, even though they do hold stock. Uh, those are not uh, stock certificates that uh, that impart ownership in any meaningful sense. Mm-hmm. They do not vote for the head of the Federal Reserve System. They can't even vote for their board of directors, you see. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you own something, you can sell it, but mm-hmm. these the banks may not sell that stock. Mm-hmm. So the restrictions are everywhere. It, it just is uh, like it's um, oh, it's like wallpaper. It's supposed to look mm-hmm. good. It makes it look like the the banks own the Federal Reserve. But when it mm-hmm. comes to real control, which is the test of ownership, they have no control whatsoever over. It. Well, I did see some research done by an individual, uh, and he applied this uh, 3% of capital and came up with some interesting percentages of ownership, which would imply, uh, might imply some kind of control, even though, as you say, they don't, they can't vote, uh, in the same way, uh, as you normally would if you're a stockholder. But he came up with something like JP Morgan having 15%, Citigroup having another 8%, uh, Bank of America, 19%. You take those three largest banks in the United States, and again, and, and then if you combine Wells Fargo and Wachovia, you've got another 15%. So you've got basically four banks that are controlling, well, it's like I guess you're getting up, up to 50% or, or more than 50% of the shares of the Federal Reserve. Now, you would think that those institutions might have some influence at least uh, if if not outright control. And then we look at the names of those, Ed. We're talking J.P. Morgan Chase. The Chase was a Rockefeller group, J.P. Morgan, as we talked about, Citigroup. Also, um, I, I guess, uh, you know, we just talked about the people that were involved in the early days. In the early days, the days when the Federal Reserve was formed. Now, um, the question that I have, though, is do you think those same families – uh, have the same kind of influence and control now as they had a century ago? My gut feeling is that they don't, mm-hmm. um, because I really uh, 
Well, first of all, I, I have to agree with the numbers that you just uh, mentioned a moment ago. Mm-hmm. All, all of those represent the big players. Mm-hmm. They certainly uh, have an influence in the cartel simply because they're big players, because of mm-hmm. the asset size. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that control is administered through the stock. That's the point. Uh-huh. It, it's just because they, they are big players and they control so much in the way of capital and credit. And uh, that's where they and why they have the the influence that they do, but I don't think it's necessarily uh, uh, along family lines anymore. Uh, and but in all honesty, I don't know because unfortunately they've never invited me to one of their meetings to ask <laughs> me to sit in and see how that works. <laughs> but it just seems to me that uh, that the influence has shifted a little bit. And I don't think it's so much family as it used to be. But even if it is, it doesn't really make too much difference. The important thing is that it has that the American people have zero influence over it, and that's that's the really critical thing. Right. Well, you know, how uh, how they divide the power up among the cartel members is interesting. But as far as uh, as solving our economic problems are concerned, it doesn't make any difference. Right. We're going to have to go to a commercial break in a couple of minutes here, Ed, but I, I want to get in. Maybe we can start talking about this issue of the bailouts. When the Fed is criticized for bailing out banks and automobile companies, the defense usually is, well, you, uh, you have nothing to worry about. The Fed was paid back, and um, you know we returned all the money as a profit to the, to the taxpayers. What is your response to that defense? Bunk is the kindest word I can think of. It's all sleight of hand. I don't believe a word of it. And uh, in fact, if uh, anybody that reads our weekly news service called Unfiltered News, you'll see uh, from week to week we often have articles that that show from the news itself. That's not very well ballyhooed, but it's right out in the news that th- what they're normally doing when they say they've paid back this money is they've they've borrowed it from some other pocket in order to put it in the first pocket. Mm -hmm. It's sleight of hand. This money is not coming from the profits of those companies. Mm -hmm. not coming from the automobile profits or the banking profits. It's coming from from more bailouts being Mm -hmm. done by the Federal Reserve, but more secret. Nobody knows about them until finally somebody blows the whistle and says, yeah, but this money was just reborrowed. It's all sleight of hand. Yeah. Well, the Fed certainly does do a lot of things sleight of hand, and it took uh, a court order for the Fed to finally talk about some uh, trillions of dollars that they lent to European banks. Uh, imagine that, the, perhaps uh, this interlocking uh, arrangement, this interest that uh, the, that uh, banks have in this global community right now, um, that, in fact, uh, you know, uh, Ron Paul's been calling for an audit the Fed, and uh, and and I don't know if we'll ever get around to it or not. Certainly, if they can help it, we, it they will not be audited. But we uh, we see this, you know, this, this sort of secretive behavior on the part of the Fed. Uh, we are going to go to a commercial break, and as soon as we come back, Ed, I've got a whole lot of other questions to ask about the Fed, its policies, and how that's impacting uh, Americans' liberties and freedom and uh, and financial well-being. So don't go away, folks. We're going to be right back with Ed Griffin. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
Merix Gold with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merix and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $16 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merix's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. Romeo's Gold offers unprecedented opportunities in the final frontier of British Columbia's Golden Triangle, a copper gold rich region with improving infrastructure. Romeo's properties are located in the vicinity of multi-billion dollar deposits. With its $6 million plus drilling program underway, Romeo's Gold is focused on developing world-class mineral resources in a major upcoming mining district. Legend Gold Corp. is a gold exploration company with flagship projects in Mali, West Africa. With successful drilling programs and new discoveries this year, we are in an excellent position to advance our two gold deposits. Shareholder value is anchored at Chukamala by a 43-101 compliant resource of approximately 600,000 ounces of gold. The recent addition of the Munina project offers the potential for a third gold strike. Legend Gold trades under the symbol LGN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Please go to our website at www. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 